Tonight, uh, we're looking at perhaps uh, one of the uh, scariest uh, passages in the whole Bible. Uh, at least I uh, certainly found that to be so when I was about uh, 15 years old. Uh, I was born again around the age of 16. Uh, I'd been brought up in a Christian family, uh, but when I was about 15 years old, I don't know if it was the first time, but it was the first time I can remember, uh, I became aware of these verses, and I was terrified uh, that I had committed uh, the unforgivable sin that Jesus speaks of in this passage. Now, I can remember vividly a time uh, in early years when I was a child when uh, I was wrestling some temptation and uh, I wanted to go my own way, but I knew the Bible said it was wrong. And in my frustration, I vividly remember saying in my head, I may even have said it out loud, I can't remember, but I said, go away, God. That was the heart, my heart attitude, because it was so frustrating. And that memory tortured me when I was 15, and I wondered whether I had committed the unforgivable sin. Uh, so this evening, I want to look at uh, this question of what is the unforgivable sin? Uh, why is it unforgivable? And how do we know if we have committed it today? Um, but in order to do that, we need to understand a little bit of the context uh, in which Christ gave this teaching regarding the unforgivable sin. And the context is given for us in verses 22 to 27. It would probably be worth if I read those verses again. Uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 22 reads, uh, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem, said, he, speaking of Christ, has Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebub was uh, considered the the ruler of the demons, another name for Satan, essentially. And they said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So Jesus called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. Uh, We've seen in the last few weeks, haven't we, how Jesus has been going around all Galilee And he's been healing multitudes of people, hundreds, perhaps, I'm not sure, maybe thousands, of different people. And he's been casting out demons. And the Pharisees, who were his enemies, as we saw last time, uh, they hated that they couldn't deny the miracles. There were just far too many. Uh, They could see people who were undeniably sick being made well. Uh, The people who were sick themselves knew that they had been sick but had been healed. Uh, People who had been afflicted by demons for who knows how long had been released and they couldn't dispute the reality of it. The weight of evidence was simply too great. 
But because their hatred was so deep for Christ, they sought another solution. Uh, They couldn't bear to bow the knee to Christ, so they said, well, Christ must be performing these miracles by some other power. Not God. Of course, we can't go against God. But perhaps by some other power. Ah, demons, Satan. And they said, surely Christ must be performing his miracles by an evil power and not by a good one. Uh, Incidentally, this gives us another example of the kind of behavior which we saw the Pharisees displaying last week. Uh, The attitude that uh, dislikes someone or a group of people so much that you, you actually look at their behavior in order to find something wrong with it. Uh, instead of disliking a sort of behavior, and so disliking it when you see it in others, they dislike a person, and so they look for behavior which they can dislike. Uh, we call it different things, don't we? It's prejudice, uh, partiality, discrimination. Uh, and God hates it. And we should hate it as well. Uh, We shouldn't prejudge a person and then look for reasons to justify that judgment. That is getting things back to front. But that is precisely what the Pharisees were doing of Christ. They hated him, they were jealous of him, and so they were looking for reasons to dislike him, to judge him. And they were looking for ways to discredit what he was doing. But Jesus, as always, points out the foolishness of their reasoning. Uh, They see him casting out demons and they say, well, he must be doing it through the power of demons, not through God's power, but through uh, angelic power, evil angelic power, the power of Satan. And, Satan sa- and Christ says, that's ridiculous. That makes no sense. He says, uh, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. How can Satan cast out Satan? Uh, what Christ is saying is, for Satan to do this would be like a soldier in battle chopping his own head off. Uh, It'd be unexpected, but not a very good strategy. Uh, You might catch your enemy unawares, but you also end the war, as far as your personal war is concerned, right then. Uh, However much you might call it a strategy, it's nothing but foolishness. Uh, It'd be like trying to win a chess match by placing your king into check. Uh, Again, unexpected, but utterly foolish. That's the way to lose the match, not to win it. Christ knows what Satan's aim is. Uh, Satan's aim is to uh, have an ever-increasing control and mastery over us. Uh, If he cannot take possession of us, as so many people were, as we've seen in the Gospels, uh, he will seek to tempt us. 
He will seek to influence us in whatever ways he can. If temptation doesn't work, he will seek to bring hardship and difficulty into our life and cause us to, uh, to try and cause us to deny Christ, as he did with Job. Uh, in all these various ways, Christ and Satan is trying to take control of our lives. So it makes absolutely no sense that Satan's strategy would be to relinquish control of a human being's life. As I've said, that would be like chopping off his own head or putting himself into check. And Satan, to do, for Satan to do that would be the height of foolishness. And Christ exposes the foolishness of the Pharisees' reasoning. And he shows how ridiculous it is. But then Christ himself goes, if you like, on the attack. Because not only is this thinking ridiculous, it's also incredibly dangerous. Uh, This thought process, this way of reasoning that the Pharisees are going down, is incredibly dangerous to their soul. Look what Christ says next in verse 28. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. In these verses, uh, Jesus makes his first mention of the, what's known today as the unforgivable sin, uh, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it begs the question, doesn't it? So, so what is this sin? Uh, it's not immediately clear from what Christ says exactly what this sin is. Uh, When we speak of blasphemy today, we generally are referring to people taking God's name in vain, aren't we? Uh, We hear it all the time on the TV, uh, in the street even. And uh, it's when people take God's name on their lips, but they don't give it the holiness that it deserves. They don't give it the reverence and the esteem that it deserves, and they treat it lightly. And for sure, that is a form of blasphemy, but that's not exactly what Christ has in mind here. Uh, To blaspheme more broadly is to curse or defame something sacred, to take something holy and sacred and pure and to treat it as though it's unholy and impure and not sacred. Uh, There was a short-lived fad some years ago, uh, some of you might uh, remember it even, uh, where Uh, people on YouTube would film themselves uh, denying the Holy Spirit. Uh, They were often atheists who wanted to uh, boast, I guess, about their atheism. And they would take these verses and they would, in a kind of act of foolish bravado, would uh, deny the Holy Spirit with their words and so claim to have committed the unforgivable sin. So sure were they in their atheism. But even that doesn't really get to the bottom of what Christ is really speaking of here. Uh, The clue is in verse 30. 
In verse 29, Jesus says, He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Then in verse 30, Mark says, Because they said he has an unclean spirit. The Pharisees were saying that Jesus performed his miracles, performed his exorcisms through the power of an unclean spirit, when, of course, in reality, he did those miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Pharisees were taking the holiest person there is, God himself, God the Holy Spirit, and they were saying, they were equating him with an evil spirit. And it's hard to think of a more greater, a greater form of blasphemy than that. They were taking God's greatest light and calling it darkness. They were taking the epitome of good and calling it evil. And in so doing... At the very, very least, they were in danger of committing the unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But you might ask the question, why Why is it unforgivable? What makes this sin so bad that Jesus calls it unforgivable? Uh, Well, we get some help with this in Luke's Gospel, because Uh, these uh, words of Christ are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but with slight differences in all of them. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 12. Uh, Christ says, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus says, any blasphemy against him is forgivable. It's sin, for sure. We shouldn't do it, definitely. But nevertheless, it is forgivable. Uh, People blaspheme Christ every day. People reject Christ every day. Every minute of every day, there is people, millions of people, rejecting Christ Even Peter, a beloved apostle of Christ, denied him three times with curses, we're told. But Jesus says that's forgivable. It is forgivable to blaspheme against him. But he says it's going deeper to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look at it it in this way. Uh, The Bible says that everyone in the world should know that God exists. Uh, Romans chapter 1 tells us because God has manifested himself through creation. Uh, People should look at the creation and say, this cannot have come about by itself. There must be a creator. That's kind of reasoning that even a child can understand. Uh, We're in a building... We don't know who the builder is, but we know there must be one because there is a building. It's just basic logic. Uh, There is a world, therefore there must be a world builder. 
And the Bible says it's clear to us that there is a God. And yet many people shut their eyes to the truth of that. And they deny the creator. They blaspheme, if you like, God the Father. But there's still hope for them. Uh, There's hope because they might come to see God's word and they can read about Christ. And they can see God more clearly in Jesus Christ. God's revealed himself in creation, but he's revealed himself even more loudly and clearly in Jesus Christ. Uh, As John's Gospel says, the Son has declared him. So even if they reject creation, they might see through Christ. But of course, many people don't. Many people reject the witness of Christ. They hear the Gospel, but they deny him. They reject him. They blaspheme against Christ. But even then, there's hope. Uh, There's hope because the Holy Spirit in time might open their eyes to see what they could not see before. The Holy Spirit might work in their heart and open their eyes and they can say, I see it now. I couldn't see it before. I was blind. I saw Jesus, but I rejected him. But now I see that he is who he said he was because the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes. But, so it seems, it seems some people can resist even that work of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit works in someone's heart and starts to show them this is true, Jesus is who he said he was, It's possible to shut your heart against that. And that's what the Pharisees were doing here. They saw the miracles. They saw Jesus with his own eyes. And they saw undeniable evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in the lame people who could walk and the blind people who could see and the uh, evil spirits that were cast out. They saw the work of the Holy Spirit and yet they shut their eyes to it. They said, it can't be that. I don't want to believe that. It must be an evil spirit. And Jesus says, there's no hope for such a person. Uh, Reject God the Father in creation? Well, you might see God the Son. Reject God the Son? Well, you might have your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. Reject the Holy Spirit, and where else is there for you to go? There is no more light that can be given to you. Uh, This is the reasoning that the author of Hebrews uses in Hebrews chapter 6. And he speaks to people who have uh, heard the gospel and they seem to have responded to the gospel. And they've acknowledged the truth of the gospel, but then later on have said, no, actually, I'm turning my back on that. And the author of Hebrews says they've done despite. They've despised the spirit of grace. And he says there's nothing more that can be done for them because they've rejected the greatest light that Christ can give, the light of the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, These Pharisees are displaying an attitude of heart which is like uh, someone who uh, sees a bill on the doormat but they refuse to open it because they don't want to see how much they have to pay. Or a person who can hear screams next door, but they shut their ears to it because they don't want to help. 
uh, or someone who can see out the corner of their eye that someone is suffering on the other side of the street, but they walk on the other side so they don't have to deal with it. Uh, the Bible calls that willful blindness. Uh, it's one thing to be innocently ignorant. Uh, we're all innocently ignorant of many things. But it's another thing to be deliberately ignorant, to deliberately close your eyes when your eyes have been opened to something. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus says that once you do that, there's nothing more that can be done. It's to be guilty of an eternal sin. This begs the question, doesn't it? And I'm sure it's one that we're all thinking to some extent. Uh, How can we know if we have committed this sin? Um, How could I, as a 15-year-old, know whether uh, my rebellious thought was equivalent to what the Pharisees were doing here? Well, it's worth saying to start with that it is possible that this sin can't be committed today. Uh, Remember, the Pharisees uh, had a light that we do not have today. They saw Christ in the flesh. They saw Christ performing miracles with their own eyes. That's a privilege that we do not have today. Uh, So it's possible that this sin could only be committed by those who had the greatest light. Uh, You might remember what Jesus Jesus said of Judas And he said of Judas that it would have been better if he had never been born than to have betrayed Christ. And the reason was Judas saw more of Christ than anyone else besides the other 11 apostles. Uh, Judas had his eyes opened more than anyone else in that sense from a human point of view. And yet he still rejected the Messiah. And the Pharisees were in a similar point of view, uh, in a similar situation. Uh, You might remember what Christ said of the towns of Bethsaida and Chorazin, which were two cities in Galilee, or two towns in Galilee, where he ministered. And he said it will be more tolerable. It will be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for them. Because if the things had been done in them, as he had done in them with his miracles, then Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented in dust and ashes yet. Bethsaida, Chorazin, remained on the whole hard-hearted. They'd seen the light, and yet they had rejected it nonetheless. So it is possible that we cannot commit this sin because we don't have the same extent of light that they had then. So it's not possible for us to close our eyes in the same way. But we still need to be careful because the principle still applies. Uh, The Holy Spirit is working today. Uh, The Holy Spirit works in this world to convince the world of righteousness and of judgment. Uh, He convicts us of sin. Uh, And we need to be careful not to resist that work. Uh, This is one of the reasons, by the way, where we need to be careful Uh, about the judgments we pronounce on other Christians. Uh, Certainly there are false teachers out there, 
but we need to beware lest we accuse true believers of being something that they're not, of calling something which is good evil. You might have noticed, actually, in this passage, uh, this little section from verses 22 to 30, which is all about the unforgivable sin, it's sandwiched between two sections which speak about Jesus' family. In verse 21, it says, When his own people, referring to Jesus' family, heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And then in verse 31, after Jesus' teaching about the unforgivable sin, it says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my brother? Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus' earthly family, they thought they had a special claim to Christ. They thought, as if you like, he was theirs. But Jesus said, no. There's a closer bond than a mere blood relation. He says, the people who are my true family are those who do the will of my Father, who do the will of God. And so we need to beware that we don't accuse people who are doing the will of God and claim that they are doing the will of Satan, ultimately. Uh, We need to be careful what judgments we make about other people, lest we find ourselves going down an alley like these Pharisees of accusing the light to be darkness. Uh, But in a more personal way, we need to be careful not to ignore when the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. Uh, There's a very famous verse in Hebrews chapter 3, which says, If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Uh, If you hear God's word speaking to you, convicting you of some sin... In some way, whatever it is, God is showing you that you are not walking in the right path. Don't ignore that voice. Don't harden your heart against it. That is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. It reminds me of a story I heard of a a bird in winter who spotted a carcass on a piece of ice floating on the water. And he landed and began to eat on the carcass. Um, And he knew it was dangerous because there was a waterfall just up ahead. But he looked at his wings and he thought, it's okay, I can always fly to safety in a moment. And he goes on eating the carcass. Uh, But just before the ice goes over the waterfall, he he spread his wings to fly off, only to realize his claws had frozen to the ice. And there was no escape through his wings. And that's an illustration of what it can be like for us. We can say, oh, it's okay, I'll repent tomorrow. It's okay, I'll I'll rectify that tomorrow. Uh, I'll sort that another day. But we can't guarantee that day will come. Uh, The book of Proverbs says, he who hardens his heart, um, I need to paraphrase, 
uh, will one day find that he has hardened it to the extent that he cannot turn back. Uh, we cannot presume on God. We must be careful that when we hear God's voice, we don't resist him. Uh, instead of doing what the Pharisees did and fight with all their soul against the Holy Spirit, we need to bow and to listen to what the Holy Spirit says to us. Uh, but the ultimate answer for how we can know if we have or have not committed this sin is by clinging to the promises of God. And this is where uh, I myself found uh, comfort and help when I was fearful age 15 to 16 that I committed this sin. And I found comfort in the end, took a while, from uh, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11. And in Matthew chapter 11, uh, let me read it so I don't mangle the verse. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. I read these words. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that was a huge balm, as it like, if you like, for my soul, because Jesus doesn't give any qualification there. He doesn't say, Come to me unless you have forgiven you have committed the unforgivable sin. Then you can come to me. No, he says, Come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, likewise, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Not whoever, unless you committed the unforgivable sin, comes to me, I will not cast out. It's whoever. And the reason for that is simple. Because the very problem with those who have committed the unforgivable sin is they no longer want to come. They've so hardened their heart that they no longer want to repent. They can't repent. Uh, they've poked out their eyes and they can no longer see Christ. Uh, they've stopped up their ears so God's word no longer has any power in their hearts. Uh, they've shut off all desire to come and they are left to their own devices. So if you still have a desire to come, uh, if you find in your heart a desire to come to Christ, then you do not need to despair. Uh, as the end of the book of Revelation says, he who desires to come, he who wants to come, can take of the water of life freely. Whosoever wants to, whosoever will, may come. And that's the ultimate evidence that you have not committed the unforgivable sin if you still feel in your heart a desire to come to Christ, to confess to him, to ask him to wash you, to cleanse you, to make you new, that is sure and certain evidence that the Holy Spirit is still working in your life. So I hope it's an encouragement to us to close this evening. Uh, if you're worried about this sin, uh, don't just cogitate and worry in your mind about whether you've done it or not. Run to Christ, run to him, claim his promises, and you'll find the peace that only he can give. But at the same time, take warning. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Bow to him, and you'll find that always the safest
path. And so to close, we will sing a final hymn which does just that. Uh, a hymn which really does the opposite of the sin of the, against the Holy Spirit. Instead of resisting him and rejecting him and speaking against him, this hymn invites him to come, invites him to change us, to make us what he wants us to be. So we'll close by singing number 295. Come down, O love divine, seek thou this soul of mine and visit it with thine own ardour glowing. O comforter, draw near, within my heart appear and kindle it thy holy flame bestowing. So we'll close by singing 295.